Good evening. Oh, you can do better than that. Good evening. Okay, much better. Okay. You turn to John chapter 4. We'll be in verses 1 through 42 this evening as we continue our journey through the Gospel of John. So I brought a few bottles of water with me today uh, that I picked up at the grocery store. This one, smart water, is supposed to make you smart if you drink it. Um, what it says, <laughs> we'll see. This one, crazy water from the Mineral Wells, Texas. And it says, maybe because of the flavor, maybe because just might have headed a crazy woman who drank it and healed her. So I don't know. If you have a crazy moment, you can drink this, and maybe that will make you not crazy. This one, vitamin water, supposed to fill you full of vitamins and vitality, um, even lemonade flavor. I'm not quite sure it tastes like Chick-fil-A lemonade, but it's still supposed to give you vitamins, right? And this one, Essentia. <laughs> I love this one. It says, we're here to put a flag in the ground and tell the world that a better you starts with better water. So if you want to be a better you, drink this, okay? If I drank that, I'd have to go to the restroom. But <laughs> and then here's my favorite, C4 Energy, all right? Tap into explosive energy to unleash superhuman performance and dominate life. Who wouldn't want to do that, right? Get your superhuman strength, superhuman performance, and dominate life around you. I'm sorry to say, though, this all pales in comparison to the living water of Jesus Christ. Okay, all this is worldly advertisement and marketing. Um, sure, water's healthy for you, and maybe adding vitamins and changing pH is healthy for you. But it can't affect your salvation. It cannot affect your eternal life. It cannot fill you with peace and satisfaction. Only Jesus Christ can, the living water. And that's where we're going to be this evening. We're going to see that Jesus is the living water and the Savior of the world. He's going to announce that this evening in chapter 4. And for the first time, Jesus is going to say those special words, I am, equating himself with God. Uh, remember, in the book of John, there's going to be seven I am statements. And the first one is going to be here tonight. And he's going to give that not to his disciples, not to a king, not even to his mother, not to his father Joseph, but going to give it to a Samaritan woman and say, I am. He is the living God. In this story, we have a, a nameless Samaritan woman, right? We don't even know her name. But there's so much truth here in this conversation that Jesus has with her that we're going to see tonight. And the big idea we're going to see is that spiritual thirst is not quenched by anything or anyone in this present world. Jesus alone can quench our dissatisfaction and discord with the living water of the Spirit. Jesus alone. So before we get, dive in here, let's kind of review where we've been since we've been journeying through it a few weeks. In chapter 1 was the prologue, right, where John is just outlining who Jesus is and setting his thesis that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, the light of the world. And then these chapters that we've been in, chapters 2 through 4, we see the first time the manifestations of Jesus' glory. 
We started off in Cana in Galilee, and we've been marching down south through the land. We started in Galilee with the, the wedding, then we moved to Jerusalem, where we, he went in and cleansed the temple for the first time, and then he had a conversation with Nicodemus, and then he moves to Judea. Matt talked about that last night, I mean last week. And then today he's in Samaria. He's been traveling south. And then the rest of the second half of chapter 4, which will be next week, he'll be going back up toward Galilee. So he's gone down, he's going back up. And so he's been traping through the, the valley there around the Jordan River. And we talked about at the beginning when we first talked about this uh, gospel that there's this theme of water. And we've already been talking about water a lot uh, at the baptism, right? You see John the baptizer baptizing people with water, purifying them, basically saying, there's a new start. You've been purified, you're redeemed, you've repented, you're turned away from your sin, you're a new start. And then he goes to this wedding and converts water into wine, signifying the new covenant. So new self, new covenant. And then he has this conversation with Nicodemus saying that you have to be born of water and spirit, that you are a new creation. And then tonight, he's saying, I am the living water, and I'm going to give you a new occupant, the spirit, when you accept me and believe in me. So we've gone progression from a new start to a new covenant, a new creation, and a new occupant in our lives. And, And Jesus and John here have been intentional using this theme and telling us who Jesus is why he should be glorified and magnified in our lives. We're going to be in a certain city this, this evening, almost said this morning, this evening, um, in Sychar. You all have actually heard of Sychar before. In the Old Testament, it's called Shechem. And lots of things happen in Shechem, if you remember. This is where, this city of Shechem is where God reveals his faithfulness and his promise to his people. When Abraham first comes out of Babylonia, where does he go? He goes to Shechem. And he has a conversation with God there. And God says, I'm going to remind you, I have promised you that you're going to have a land and many descendants if you trust and obey and believe in me. And Abraham builds an altar there in Shechem and and worships God. Later, Jacob does the same thing. And when he comes back from the promised land, from being with Laban uh, and bringing his wives with him, he and his children, all the spoils and all the flocks that he has, where does he go? He comes to Shechem. And he sets up an altar. He, he buys the land with 100 pieces of, of silver in Shechem. And then sets up an altar. And the altar's name is El Elohi Israel. God, the God of Israel. Flash forward a few years and his son Joseph, he's on his deathbed. And he says, Joseph, this plot of the land of Shechem, I give to you. This is your part of your inheritance, this land. And Joseph, when he's dying in Egypt, he reminds everybody in Egypt and his brothers that God has made a promise that he's going to lead us to this promised land. He's going to make us a great nation and great descendants and the Messiah is going to come through our our line. So when I die, take my bones and bury them in Shechem. And in Genesis 50, 25, that is done. Joseph's bones are buried in Shechem. Joshua, many years later, when the Israelites are in, is, uh, in the promised land, and Joshua's about to die. Um, he calls everybody back together. And where does he assemble everybody? Shechem, right? Calls in Joshua 24, comes back to Shechem. And he says, he reminds God, 
reminds them of God's promises. He said, this place, this place is where God made his promise with Abraham, with Jacob. And Joseph remembered that. And I'm remembering this. Let me tell you the story. And so Joshua tells the story in, in chapter 24 and reminds everyone of what God has done in his faithfulness. And then it charges people, decide this day who you will serve. We know that verse, right? Joshua 24. We know that verse. Who will you serve? The faithful God who promised these things to you. And so it should not be, it should be interesting to us to see that this is where Jesus is going to reveal himself as the Messiah. You see the connection? I have promised you I'm going to save you and make you a great land and a great nation. And here's the Messiah now coming. I'm going to save you. I want to make you a great nation of believers in my kingdom. And he's connecting the Old Testament and what Jesus' purpose is in the New Testament here at this city. And John is reminding us, my goal here, reader, is to magnify the glory of Jesus Christ. So let's begin. And we're going to do this in two parts. Those are our 42 verses here. I want to read the first 26 verses, and then we'll discuss those together. And then I'll read the second half, and we'll discuss those. So verses 1 through 26, chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So he's headed north. And he had to, keep those words in mind, he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field of Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is high noon, 12 o'clock. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is very deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or I have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, uh, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, 
and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So on these first 26 verses, we're going to see, you know, Jesus has announced that he is the living water. And we're going to see four characteristics of that living water that it impacts our lives even now today. The first one is we see the dual nature of Jesus revealed. We see that he is both God and human. Right? He's God and man. We see that he is God, but he knew what this life of this woman was, right? He has never been there before, but he knew everything about her life. She recognized he was a prophet. That first part, he said he had to come, right? Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Right? He was guided by what? The Spirit. He had to go there. There was a purpose for him to go. It was his divinity telling him, I need to go through Samaria to do, a, I have a purpose here. And then later on, of course, we see he, is, he announces, I am, equating himself with deity, with God himself. We also see that he is man. He is human, right? He walked to Samaria from Judea, right? He didn't just pop from one place to another like he has done before in other places in the Gospels, right? He didn't, angels didn't come pick him up and transfer him over there, right? He didn't have a heavenly cab going from one spot to another. He walked on his feet through the desert like everybody else. And it says he was wearied from his travels, right? Because Jesus, yes, he was God, but he's also fully man. He can relate with us. He was weary. He was tired from his travel. And he was thirsty. It's hot in the desert, right? Some of you have been there to Israel. It's hot at high noon. <laughs> and so he's thirsty from his travels, and he wants a drink. You know, John has already told us in verse 14 in chapter 1 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that Jesus was God, and he dwelt among us as a man. This humanity and divinity wedded together, right? There's a fancy word we call hypostatic union. Um, we don't know what that means, right? I've been to school 30 years, still don't know what it means, okay? Um, it is just this, what, this term we use to describe Jesus being fully man and Jesus being fully God at the same time. We don't understand it, right? Nor should we. We're finite human minds, but that, that's what the word says, that he is fully man and fully God. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, that God was embodied in human form. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Human Jesus, God the Father are one. One person, fully God and fully man. Jesus is two natures here, together. Distinct, nature, distinct natures, but one person. But we have to have this dual nature, right? He cannot be the Messiah that we need without having it. He has to be fully man and fully God. He has to be able to relate to us and yet be sin-free so that he can die for us as a perfect sacrifice. And then, as God, he has the power to conquer death and to be resurrected. And he's coming back for us under the power of God, his, his deity. He cannot be our Savior. He cannot be our Messiah unless he had both natures. And we see this in the living water, that he is both man and God at the same time. 
the other characteristic that we see here is that the living water is driven by compassion for humanity. It's not driven by ethnicity or social class. That's important for us to realize, right? Especially in this world, which is driven by so many other motivations. Jesus is not motivated by things in the world. He takes a radical route. He goes through Samaria. If we can have the map up, please. We're going to see Jesus travels in that center white line going from uh, up through Samaria, back up to Galilee. That's the shortest route, by the way, 85 miles of walking. But if you were a Jew of Jews, you would not go by the shortest route. You actually would take more than likely the red route. You go way out of your way, two to three extra days of walking. You, don't, you go around Samaria. You don't go through it because you don't want anything to do with the Samaritans. And so they go actually to another country, the Perea, and cross the Jordan River twice just to go around these people. Or you could take the, the other route along the seacoast um, before you get to, into the mountains. But Jesus says, no. <laughs> I want to take a radical route. I don't care about Samaria. I care about people. My compassion is for them, so I'm going to go straight through. Because I have to do my Father's will, and I have a purpose to go to Sychar or Shechem. I'm not going to go around. Thank you for putting the map up. Who does he talk to? A Samaritan woman, right? You know, earlier we had him talking to Nicodemus at night, right? Talk to a man in the dark. Here it's high noon. He's talking to a woman in bright day- daylight. Okay. Talk to a Jewish rabbi, member of the Sanhedrin. Now he's talking to a Samaritan woman. Jesus, a rabbi, he would not do that, right? According to the customs and rules of rabbinical law. But she needed him to be there, right? Now, we don't know much about her, right? We don't know her name. By the way, we read the story, she, you know, women normally would not be there at high noon getting water. They would go early in the morning when it wasn't so hot, and they could talk together and converse and have fellowship as they're getting water that they would need it throughout the day. The fact that she comes at high noon and knowing her past could lead us to think that she was ostracized by the community, right? Um, we don't know for sure. And there's lots of speculation about her, right? We see that some things that text does not say. The text does not say she was a prostitute, right? Does not say that whatsoever. It says that she was divorced, maybe, or maybe her husband's died. We don't know how it happened to those five husbands. Maybe they died. Uh, maybe the leveret marriage was involved. Maybe they were divorced. We don't know. The text doesn't say. So we have to be careful not to read that in. It also says, and here, Jesus, did you hear? He did not really forgive her about anything, right? He did not judge her. He did not say anything about her sins. That's not what this passage is about. He's not coming here to judge her. He's coming here to share with her and the rest of the city that he's the Savior of the world. A woman and a rabbi would not be talking together in public. Uh, rabbis were forbidden to talk to women. In fact, there was actually a strict sect who would not even look at women. Right? And they had a nickname that they would have a bruise on their head because they'd run into things. Because they were trying to hide, not run into a woman, they run into stuff. Right? That's how far they took it. So they would not talk to a woman. But yet here's Jesus talking to a woman and also talking to a Samaritan woman. 
And we, we know the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along, right? Uh, the Jews considered them to be half-breeds because they were partially Samaritan ethnicity and partially Jewish ethnicity mixed together. At one time, the Samaritans actually built their own temple, and actually the Jews came and defeated them and knocked it down and burned it. And so there was lots of animosity between the two people to the point that they would go around, right, not even go through Samaria. But that's not what we see Jesus doing here. He sees who? He sees a Samaritan woman made in the Imago Dei, the image of God. He doesn't see a Samaritan woman. He sees someone made in the image of God that he has compassion for and needs to hear the gospel message. One commentator said, Jesus breaks open boundaries in his conversation with the Samaritan woman. The boundary between male and female, the boundary between chosen people and rejected people. Jesus' journey Samaria and his conversation with the woman demonstrate that the grace of God that he offers is available to everyone. Praise the Lord, right? He is motivated by compassion, the living water is, not by ethnicity or social class. Third thing we see here is the living water is satisfying and life-giving. Look at verses 14 and 15 one more time. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And of course, the woman says, give me some of this water. Of course, then she misinterprets what he's talking about. She says, I, just so I don't have to go back to this well again to drink up more water, right? And so I don't get thirsty again. And God, is, Jesus is talking about spiritual matters, right? And she's thinking about the physical. People are always searching for something, right? That will fill the void in their heart. A void that can only be filled with Jesus. None of these waters, nothing in this world, only living word of Christ. What are we searching for? It could be relationships, busyness, alcohol, drugs, exploring other religions. We take all those things and we can try to fill our voids in our life. That will not work, will not satisfy us. What you and I long for, what we're really thirsty for, can only be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And only that. We long to feel loved, and Jesus is the only one that can give us unconditional love. We long to have purpose, and Jesus is the only one that can give us a greater purpose, an eternal purpose. We long to be free from anxiety and depression, and Jesus is the only one that can fill us with peace and hope. We are thirsty for joy and happiness, and the greatest joy can only come from the freedom that Jesus gives us. Freedom from fear, worry, anxiety, you fill in the blank. Only Jesus can satisfy. And he's told this woman, like, I can, this living water will satisfy you. He is the living water. He wants to satisfy your deepest desires and fill us with the Holy Spirit. The thing is, is when we're abiding in Christ, our deepest desires will be his desires, right? Won't be ours. And of course, he will satisfy those. Question is, will you let him, right? Will we let him fill us? There's a Puritan named Sibes who said, All earthly things are as salt water that increases the appetite and satisfy us not. Salt water makes you more thirsty, right? Doesn't satisfy you. Man was made for eternity. Things in this world, this temporal world, cannot satisfy us. The Rolling Stones were right. I can't get no satisfaction. And you can't in this world, right? Only Jesus Christ can do that. 
Psalm 107.9 says, For he satisfies the longing soul. Isaiah 55.1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come to the living water. And then Revelation 21.6, that great passage towards the end. Jesus is standing there and he says, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega. We just sang that, right? The beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water a life without payment. He freely gives us a living water. He is the living water. It's the only thing that satisfies. And as I was thinking about this week, I was reminded of an old hymn. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of it. I heard the voice of Jesus say. Here's the chorus. I have heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give the living water, thirsty one. Stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in him. Amen? The fourth thing that we see here about the living water of Jesus Christ is it defines the basis of true worship. See, this Samaritan woman thought that a a place of worship was what was important. Whether they worship here in these mountains of Samaria or whether Jews worship in Jerusalem, the place of worship was important. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not about a place, it's about a person. And his name is I Am. And I am the living water. Yes, Shechem is important in the history of the Jews and the history of the world, but it is not true worship. Yes, the Samaritans worshiped in the mountain and built a temple there, but it is not true worship. The temple in Jerusalem is not true worship. Church, this church is not true worship. We can worship here, yes, but look around. This is a converted gymnasium, right? True worship is so much more. It's the person, not the place. Romans one twenty five says, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. You see, we, we replace worship of God with other things, whether it's a place or some other thing in this world, or even ourselves, right? And Jesus is telling her, no. You will only worship true in spirit through me, the living water. To worship God in truth is to recognize that he is Christ. He is God. That is the truth. He is God. I am not. To worship in spirit is to worship him in our heart because he gives us the Holy Spirit. That's the only way we can truly worship, acknowledging that truth and having the spirit within us. And this is what Jesus is trying to share with this woman. And that's what he's trying to say about this living water. Romans 8 9 says we worship in spirit because we were made in spirit when we accept Jesus and our Lord and Savior. John 7, 37 through 39. I love this passage. Jesus stands out and cries out. Was Jesus passionate? Yes. He cries out to the people. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. As yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus had not been glorified. We know in Acts at Pentecost, the spirit is given. But Jesus is crying out, drink of me. Right? 
I am both man. I can relate with you. I understand what you're going through, but I also am God, my dual nature. I am driven by compassion. I love you. I'm not here to judge you this time. I love you. If you drink of me, I will give you peace and hope. It will be life-giving, and you will have satisfaction. Nothing else can provide that. And I am the basis of true worship, Jesus Christ, the living water. She's not quite got it yet, right? But she's getting there. As we will see, as we get to the end, the people of Samaria believe that he is the Savior of the world. But she's not quite got it yet. But this is what Jesus is trying to tell us. Now let's read the second half. Chapter uh, 4, verses 27 through 42. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? They were curious, weren't they? (laughs) But they dare not ask. So the woman left her water jar. She's so excited about what Jesus told her. She leaves her water jar. And went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who has told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? (laughs) Jesus turned to them and said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes to harvest? Look, I tell you, lift your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay for them. And he stayed there for two days. That's against every rabbinical tradition, right? You're not going to stay there. He stayed for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what, and they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Amen. The Savior of the world. (laughs) His disciples are befuddled, right? He's got to be hungry, right? We've done this journey. We went to go get some food uh, and some supplies, and he hasn't eaten, and he's talking about he's already, he has food that we don't know about. And his food is not of this world, right? It's to do the Father's will. That was more important than him eating. There's a separate sermon there about food and serving God. Anyway, we'll, we'll do that another day. But I am, Jesus not focused primarily on his work. He did not focus on the need or a strategy or a technique. He didn't look up the next self-help book about how to do evangelism. He just shared who he was. His focus was doing the will of the Father, period. He was saying he's not concerned about anything in this world. He was living for a much higher purpose. 
May that be said of us. We should be, it should be said of us, right? Everything that we do, everything that we do, let me say it one more time, everything that we do should be for the glory of God. To advance his kingdom. This phrase in here, there are still four months and then comes a harvest, is a proverb they used to say back then. And it meant that there, since, since there was four months and then a harvest, there's no particular hurry to do anything. Because we've got four months and then the harvest will be here. We can take our time. But Jesus is saying, no, don't adhere to that proverb. He's saying, now is the time to harvest. It's ready now. Look around. The harvest is white. It's ready now. Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist and Jesus himself, have sowed the seeds. Disciples, at the moment, it's through your opportunity to reap. Again, the Old Testament prophets have seeded. John the Baptist has told the story and set the journey of Jesus. Jesus has been speaking and doing signs and wonders. Seeds have been sown. Disciples, go reap the harvest. Second thing we see here in this second section, not only is he the savior of the world, but he came and do his father's will, but he came for who? For whosoever, as we saw in chapter 3, verse 16. Verses 41 42. These Samaritans heard his word and believed that he is the savior of the world. Whosoever whether it's Jew, Samaritan, whoever else was there in the city, they believed. And what does he tell us in Acts 1-8 where we would go to share the gospel? But you will receive power when from the Holy Spirit has come to you, and you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem and in Judea and where else? And Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is including everyone, Right? You'll be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, of course, the Jews, in Judea, other ethnicities, in Samaria, even the ones you don't want or like and that you despise. I'm sending you there. I'm sending you to the ends of the earth to share the gospel story. The harvest is white. Let's go, he says. Because he's the savior of the world. The title of this sermon was The Spiritual Chemistry of Living H2O. The spiritual chemistry of H2O. Did you figure out what the chemistry H2O stands for? H2O, him to others. That's his spiritual chemistry. That's what Jesus was saying. Me to others, him to others. It's gospel message. That's what I'm here for, Jesus said. The big idea, remember, was spiritual thirst is not quenched by anything or anyone in this present world. Jesus alone can quench our dissatisfaction and discord with the living water of the Spirit. And how do we get that living water of the Spirit? By believing Jesus is Lord and Savior. Again, a familiar story to many of us, but profound in what Jesus is telling us. And I've th- got to put in my heart three questions to ask ourselves. I'm asking questions of you and of me as well. So God's already beat me up about these, okay? So it's my turn to beat you up on them, okay? (laughs) First question, what kind of living vessel 
of water are you? What kind of living water vessel are you? You know, these, these are vessels here, all different types. There's a metal one, plastic ones, all holding water. Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Have you done that? Have you forsaken God? Have you hewn a cistern out yourself that has holes in it? You don't have the living water inside of you? Are you spiritually depleted today? Are you in a spiritual drought? Be honest with yourselves. Some of you may be dehydrated Christians because your vessel is not holding living water. John 7, 38. Whoever believes in me, the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of water. When you trust Jesus as your savior, he's going to put this artesian well, living water within you. It's his spirit. But this world has broken cisterns, right? They don't hold the living water. Now the fountain of living water inside of us has become a river, a flowing river, it says. And it's from this flowing river that God gives us the spiritual resources that we need to do his work. Are you drinking from that river today? Or are you drinking from the world? I'm reminded of the Dead Sea versus the Jordan River, right? Dead Sea, salt, everything there is dead. Jordan River, full of life, fish, vitality. Is a life-giving life, life, uh, the life water, a river flowing from you to others? As Jesus says, it's going to be flow out of you to others. Is that happening? Or are you being critical, judgmental, uncaring, apathetic, or life-draining? Are you the Dead Sea around others? Perhaps you're not the Dead Sea. Perhaps you've just dammed up the living water inside of you. You've, you've dammed up that river of life. You're not sharing it with others. God says, I want it to be a river flowing out of you to others. Don't dam it up to yourself. Share the good news of living water to others. The world is lost and thirsty. Be that overflowing vessel. Second question. Whom do you see? Whom do you see around you? What harvest do you see? And when I see, say see, I don't just mean looking. I mean with an active looking, right? One that is driven by compassion and love, spirit-empowered good works. That's the vision I'm looking for. Do you only see someone like yourself, socially, economically, racially, ethnically? Is that the only person you see? Or do you see the least of these? Those you don't even understand, those whose sins you know, cause you revulsion. Do you see those people? Can we look past ourselves to see the lost? Many of you saw the Jesus Revolution movie. Chuck Smith had to what? He had to see past the hippies, right? He had to see them, not ignore them. And God worked through him and through them. Have you intentionally avoided certain people? And I'm not talking about using wisdom in the sermon to avoid a potentially unsafe environment. God doesn't want you to do that. But have you 
intentionally, physically avoided someone or not even looked at them. Like, ah, I don't want to share the gospel with them. Uh, I don't have time. Um, they're not like me. Uh, I don't even look at it. I don't want to make eye contact because then I'll have to, right? We've all done it. God forgive us. Humanly speaking, Jesus went out of his way to go to a despised area to talk to an ostracized woman. Jesus recognized there's one race, human, and we all have the same plight in life, sin. Romans 3.23, for we, we have all sinned. We're all the same. As a biomedical engineer, I've seen many deceased bodies and many surgeries. I can tell you we are all the same inside. Okay, and there's no difference in color of the organs and tissues and bloods and things. We're all the same, human race. Our sins may look different than those of the lost, but before I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I was equally separated from God as somebody who upholds abortion, for somebody who does a homosexual lifestyle, for those who profit drugs, alcohol, and sex. No difference, right? Sin is sin, equally separated from God. Jesus died for them. He loves them, and he commanded us to go to them. Think of the people around you at work and school, your neighborhood. How do you see them filling the God-shaped void in their lives? They can't, right? They don't have the Holy Spirit. They can't fill that void. You can't fill it. Things can't fill it. But we have the answer to peace and satisfaction and eternal life. We have that answer. Let me put it another way. We have the bolt cutter that will break the chains of sin, anxiety, depression, addictions, relational strife, poor decisions, whatever. We're sitting here holding it. God doesn't want us to hold it. He wants us to use it to save the people that we see. Because they're going to hell. They need Jesus. And he is, in his sovereignty, has given us the ability and given us the, the mandate to go and reach them. We need to see as Jesus saw. We need Jesus' vision when we see people. Do a study. Go throughout the Gospels. You'll see this common phrase. He was moved with compassion. It's used over and over again. Jesus was moved with compassion. Are you? Am I? It reminded me of a song that Brandon Hughes sings, Give Me Your Eyes. And the chorus says, Give me your eyes for just one second. Give me your eyes so I can see everything I keep missing. Give me your love for humanity. Give me your arms for the brokenhearted, the ones that are far beyond my reach. Give me your heart for the ones forgotten. Give me your eyes so I can see. Ask God to give you the eyes of Jesus, that you can see things with compassion. See past people's sins and where they're at, to see that they are made in the image of God. He loves them. And he has sent us to share the gospel message with them. You know, this church has a vision for Beeson, right? Building Beeson, a redeemed people on a redeemed land, sharing the story of a redeemer. We purposely, God has led this church to be in that community. One, a community that everybody says, you guys got to be crazy for going there. Socially, economically, 
whatever else word you want to use. They, everybody said we were crazy. But God led us there, and God is doing amazing things. But we have to keep seeing as Jesus sees. Third question, are you thirsty? Are you spiritually dehydrated today? Sit there and pray and do an assessment. Are you spiritually dehydrated? Are you biting with Jesus? Like the Samaritan woman, she was thirsty, but she was thinking she was focused on physical water. But Jesus said, no, I want you to focus on the spirit, this living water. Now, what are you thirsty for? Are you thirsty for acceptance, love, marriage, kids, forgiveness, money, safety, position, pleasure, respect? My question then is, how are you trying to quench that thirst? Are you seeking to satisfy your thirst on your own? Are you hewing out cisterns on your own, as Jeremiah 2.13 told us? It will not work. You cannot satisfy these. You cannot quench your thirst on your own. I've tried it. You've tried it. And it's failed. Only through Jesus Christ, the living water. We all have a deep inner spiritual thirst, right? We live in this fallen world. And so oftentimes we try to satisfy it with things in the water. 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whosoever does the will of God abides forever. Don't try to satisfy or quench your thirst with worldly things. People every day are hiding the wreck of their life from one another. And some of you may be trying to do that as well. I mean, I may ask you, how are you doing? We walk around and say, how are you doing? We all say, I'm fine. Right? I'm guilty of that. I come home from work and kids and Monica ask me, how was work? And I say, fine. I say one word. Right? That's not an answer to them. Right? Because I may not be fine, right? I may be frustrated with something or exhausted or happy about that. And I just say, I'm fine. We do that with one another, right? We have this masquerade. We come in here and we say, I'm fine, but you're not, right? You may be going through something right now that you need the body of Christ to come around to help you. You need Jesus to come around and help you. Don't put that facade up. What's really going on in your life, right? Another song came to mind. Yeah, Chad, you got me on songs after Worship Under Stars. So. <laughs> Matthew West sings a song, Truth Be Told. I say I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine. Oh, I'm fine. Hey, I'm fine, but I'm not. I'm broken. And when it's out of control, I say it's under control, but it's not. And you know it, he's talking to God. I don't know why it's so hard to admit it when being honest is the only way to fix it. There's no failure, no fall. There's no sin you don't already know. So let the truth be told. What's wrecking your life right now? 
Confess it to God. Let the body of Christ come around you. Are you caught in sin? Sin's addictive. Satan's had thousands of years to perfect how to get us a sin, right? It's like salt water. It's, it's only going to make you more thirsty, sinning. If you don't believe it, ask anyone who's looked at pornography. Once is not enough. If you're addicted to prescription medication, one pill is never enough. If you have a problem with anger, you're not going to lash out just once. If you have a problem with contentment, one last purchase is always needed. Is always needed, right? Amazon. Boom. <laughs> Sin, rather than satisfies, creates a thirst for satisfaction. And it's a virtual, a vicious cycle. And that's how every pursuit is outside of Jesus. You will always leave thirstier than when you arrived. Are you thirsty and don't know how to quench your thirst? Isaiah 58, 11. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fall. The answer is Jesus, the living water, the savior of the world. In closing, the big idea was what? Spiritual thirst is not quenched by anything or anyone in this world. Jesus alone can quench our dissatisfaction and our discord with the living water of the Spirit. This is our time to come and do business with Jesus, literally. What kind of living water vessel are you? Whom do you see? Are you thirsty? The prayer room is going to be open. This altar is open. Your family is here to pray with you as Chad and the worship team come up. Think of these questions. Jesus went all the way to Samaria to talk to a woman at a well. He's here tonight to talk to you now. Do not ignore him. Do not quench the spirit. Drink in the spirit, right? The living water. Father, we come before you and give you praise, Father, for who you are. You are the living water, the only one that can satisfy, the only one that can fill us with peace and hope and eternal life. And Father, I, I just feel that there's people are here that may have a facade on, that may have things going in their life, that they need help, they need you. They need this body of Christ to come around them. Father, we need to get over not sharing the gospel about people that we don't see. Give us vision to see. Help us thirst after you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen.